This is episode 100 of Offscript with Trish Glose, intimate interviews with interesting people. Joining me via Skype today is Kate Mulligan. Hi, Kate Mulligan. I am so excited. I've wanted you on this podcast for months, months and months. And I here feel we honored. I can't imagine why, but I'm really happy to be here. Well, I wanted to make 100, the 100th episode, a big deal. I really did because it's like I just was talking to you. This podcast I love so, so much. And 100 means that I've been doing it now for a long time. And I thought, who would be the best person to share this, and it was you, done, period. I'm so excited, thank you so much. I'm really, really excited, thank you for having me. And you're a celebrity. <laughs> I don't know about that. You are, you are. So I have to tell, I have to tell a quick story about how I actually met you. Um, <laughs> shocker, it was at a winery. This is how <laughs> all of these stories start off. Um, we were at a local winery Irvine and Roberts, and I there was this beautiful woman that walks by with with blonde hair, and I go, gosh, she looks familiar. I feel like I've seen her somewhere before. Um, and then I walk in the wine, and then it clicks for me. Oh, she was uh, Velma in Hairspray. That's, that's where I've seen her. So I walk inside, and I don't ever do this, but I totally fangirled you, and I was like, OMG, you are fantastic. And <laughs> do you remember what you said to me? What did I say? You go, you're my news lady. <laughs> yes. Well, our whole table of people went bananas because they all recognized you. And, you know, you're in our home all the time. So it's so interesting to, you know, newscasters are real people. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, my gosh, there she actually is. So we all got, if you remember, we were all fangirling on you. I, and I we do went remember. And yes. pictures. Dan Parker in particular was yes. um, just verklempt. He just couldn't get over that you were a walking, talking person. It was fantastic. I've never seen him so flustered. And I'll tell you something, Dan Parker, it's really funny because sometimes he's an actor at the Oregon Shakespeare mm -hmm. Festival for those who are, um, he, he knows every famous person on the planet. I mean, he, his stories are peppered with People he's worked, dear, dear friends, incredibly. I mean, like Gwyneth Paltrow, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Wow. But it was you who walked in and blew his mind out of the water. Wow. That it was a it was That's a pee true. your pants moment for me. <laughs> it really was. And for him as well. And we all really enjoyed watching that. Oh, <laughs> that's amazing. Well, Kate Mulligan, for those who don't know you, who have been living under a rock. You are an actor with the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Yes. Um, we will talk a lot about that, a lot. Yes. But I first want to get to where are you from originally? Um, and listen, please feel free to stop me and interrupt because I'm an Irish girl. I love to tell stories and I could talk for an hour just by myself and just be thoroughly. Same. <laughs> like, oh, right, there's somebody I'm supposed to be having a conversation with. So please feel free just to say, Kate, shut up for a second. Let me speak. Um, I was born in Maryland and my dad was a salesman and, but he used to write, he was a joke writer on the side, like a little side hustle for a political satirist um, named Mark Russell, who used to have live shows at the Shoreham Hotel. Mark, um, 
then went on, he did, he still does his, he still performs, but he was on real people. He sits at a, he has a lot of PBS specials. Mm -hmm. He sits at a piano draped in a flag and he sings all these wonderful songs, Mark Russell. So my dad became one of his, um, joke writers, actually his only joke writer. After about a year of my dad submitting material to him, Mark wrote to him and said, I, who are you? I don't accept other people's material, but you're really funny. I'll pay you a hundred dollars a pop. Long story short, which is not my forte, um, <laughs> Dan Rohn and Dick Martin were in the audience one night. They asked about his writer. My dad wound up being one of the original writers and creators of Laugh-In. Um, so we moved from Maryland to Hollywood, uh, and my dad was the no writer way. on Laugh-In. <laughs> it was crazy. One, he was a salesman in Maryland. One of the main, one of the main writers for Laugh-In, or yeah, like were there several the original creators? And uh, became the head writer um, from the get-go. And so he commuted back and forth to, um, from L.A. to Maryland for, I think, the first season or two. Because he kept thinking, this is not going to last. Um, and then it did. So he packed up our family and moved out. And it wasn't that strange. Um, my grandmother on his side was actually a Zigfield Folly girl. I had an aunt who... Had done was on Broadway. My uncle Bob um, played Horatio when Richard Burton did Hamlet on Broadway, and um, so that was sort of like the background of my life. And my dad was sort of the black sheep of the family right. for wanting to, you know, be a doctor and a businessman. <laughs> then he had to take care of his mom and his brothers and sisters. Uh, so, so you get it. Get you get it real honest, real, real honest, but honest. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, for when did you move out to Hollywood? Essentially, how old were you? Um, I was four um, when I got there, and my dad and my mom did not want us to live like in the heart mm -hmm. of uh, the industry. So I grew up in this really sweet beach community called Palos Verdes, um, not to be confused with Pacific Palisades, right. which is where my dad thought he was getting us a house, which was an hour and a half north of Palos Verdes. So literally my dad commuted into LA for, I don't know, 20 plus years. And it took him an hour and 20 minutes to get to work every day, uh, longer as the years progressed, because more and more traffic. And he would do that, go in and come out. Yeah. Was he, was he funny growing up? Was he a funny guy? He was, I have to say, um, my husband, Brent Hinckley, who's also an actor at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, um, uh, like my husband, Brent, the kindest and funniest man, just a mensch, just wanted to take care of us. My mother became sort of this travel bug. She had grown up in Oklahoma. They met in Maryland, um, you know, got married and had kids young. So we got to Los Angeles and she suddenly thought I could go and see the world, sort of not remembering she had three kids. Mm -hmm. So, but she would, I would come home from school and there'd be notes saying, um, I've gone to Spain. I'll be back in three months. And that's, that's true. And so <laughs> my dad really like would get up and make us breakfast would make sure we got our homework done and did all that stuff. And, um, he was just the funniest, kindest, most loving. And he was, you know, the sort of template for how, um, a man treats uh, a woman kindness and equality and um, hmm. just humor and love. <laughs> so modeling, he was my hero. 
mom would literally just, just, I'm off, flit, flit across yeah. the world. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, she was kind of amazing because I look at it now, you know, that it, it was challenging, certainly at the time, but, you know, she got married young, had kids mm -hmm. young, and then suddenly had access to see the world. And uh, at, at that time, you know, she did it all. She did it by herself. She would just map out a route and she would go explore. And by the time, I mean, when I was nine, she took me to, gosh, all over Europe. I was in Africa for a little while. Um, and she wound up, this is, I mean, to, my dad had a heart attack and died at 54 mm. um, very unexpectedly. He was a runner. He was healthy. He didn't smoke. Um, and then my mother moved to Spain and she, uh, she's going to kill me. She's going to kill me. She picked up an Icelandic fisherman outside of a bar in Portugal and moved to Iceland for 10 years. <laughs> that's taken, that's taken life by the balls right there, I guess. Really? Wow. So, I mean, she, she became, you know, she modeled this really independent behavior, which at the time when I was little, I, I didn't really grasp the, uh, the need for that. But certainly as I got older was in awe of the fact that she just was incredibly fearless her whole life. Are you like that? I mean, a little bit. When I, I have a son who's now 20, I which know. blows my mind. Um, yeah, you know, after my dad died, because it was so unexpected and we didn't know what to do, we had a, our family was very funny. I have two older brothers who are both writers and um, one's in real estate, one has a uh, uh, he had a travel show that he did on uh, N called NBC Great Getaways, mm -hmm. and I um, we all sort of really lost our minds after my dad died because clearly he'd been the, been the anchor for all of us, and so he died so unexpectedly. We uh, had him cremated, and then we didn't know what to do. So we had his ashes in the trunk of our car for about five years, we used to call him the ultimate backseat driver because <laughs> we just didn't know, we didn't have the, we didn't have one tool of how to handle crisis. Yeah. So we just sort of passed him around and, um, you know, lost our minds anyway. Um, how but then, no, I, so I got, so I got really scared. I got really, really, really mm -hmm. scared. I didn't know, um, how to function. I had had this really one person, um, and also know that I'm very, very close to my two brothers. Um, but I had had this one person who had shown me, uh, unconditional love, understanding, always spoke to me with respect and kindness. And we were incredibly bonded. And so when he died, I just, I lost my shit. Yeah. I just lost my, and got super scared. And it really wasn't until I, um, found this theater company in LA called the actors gang. Um, and I really credit that for saving me, mm -hmm. for giving me structure back, for showing me an incredible, um, community of support and creativity. And so it felt familiar to me because there was a lot of structure and there was a lot of humor and there was a lot of understanding in these people who were all doing the same thing I was wanting to do. For sure. How old were you when he passed? I was 22. Oh, man. 
Kate, I can't even imagine you were a baby. Baby. And also because I was, because I was a baby. I mean, emotionally, mentally, I had been a daddy's girl. I was the baby of the family. I was the only girl in the family. So, I mean, I could do no wrong. It was (laughs) fantastic. And then suddenly, so after my dad passed away so unexpectedly, my oldest brother, Mike, um, was a deep sea diver in Bangkok. And so he had been coming back and forth, but he wound up staying uh, in Bangkok for quite a long time. And my brother, Dave, got a one-way ticket to Australia. Um, and so, and my mom went to, went to Portugal and then to Iceland. So I suddenly found myself mm-hmm. completely solo for the first time in my life. And it was, um, you know, a lot of lessons that I should have learned growing up. My dad had grown up really poor and uh, had just kind of went overboard and spoiling his kids. And so I really, I, I did not know how to, how to function without those people that I had kind of, you know, known all my life. Sure. And, all of well, them and I can completely understand that actor's gang because being a little, little bit of a theater nerd myself, thespians are so weird and um, it's family. It's very much like a family. And sure. so dysfunctional. Did you say dysfunctional? Totally dysfunctional. <laughs> In the best I mean, way. Best way. And we were all sleeping together. It was just, everything was about creating theater and music. And, you know, we wouldn't sleep for days. And these are still some of my best friends. I mean, I found that I stumbled upon this group when I was in my 20s. And I was waiting tables at a restaurant in LA called um, La Scala Presto. It's the best chopped salads in Los Angeles. Um, and uh, I wound up there, and those that's how I met Dan Parker. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a theater company that Tim Robbins and my husband, actually Brent Hinckley and a group of people, small group of people, anarchists, um, rebels, punk rockers started out of the UCLA theater department because they had produced this really great play on their own and then wanted to take it out into the city and and the school said, no, you can't do that. This is, you know, everything's about school. You can't work professionally and blah, blah, blah. And um, so they kind of said, okay. And then they, in the middle of the night, broke into the theater department. They stole all the costumes and they took the play out into LA and they got all these amazing reviews. And that started the Actors Gang, which is still a really powerful. So it's uh, Tim Robbins is still the artistic director and it's uh, his passion and his, um, his purpose in life to create art that changes the world. That's so amazing. Let's yeah. let's go back just a little bit. What was your dad's name? Jim Mulligan. Jim. Oh, Jim. I, I think I would have liked Jim a lot. I have a feeling. He was that. He actually also went on. He did a lot. He did all like the um, um, uh, variety shows like Smothers Brothers, uh, uh, Rich Little, um, all these big, oh, Sonny and Cher he produced for a long wow. time. And then when Variety died, he started getting into sitcoms. Um, he actually, his his greatest pride was the fact that he had written and produced um, MASH and won a couple awards for that. And and because my mom wanted nothing to do with any of this, I always got to be his date. So I would go to the Emmys with him. When MASH actually ended, 
I got to go to the farewell mash party. And I was, this is so ridiculous. I remember sitting at a table, Bobby Short, famous pianist, you know, from the Carlisle Hotel in New York and then some. I was sitting between um, Bobby Short and former President Gerald Ford. <laughs> giant round table, just drinking wine and chat. I mean, it was it was crazy. It was crazy. I can't, that's that's like so far beyond anything that I could possibly wrap my hand, hands around. What kind of- Me too. What, what was and his was style? There. Yeah, what was his style of humor? I mean, was it- It was, um, it was heartfelt. That's why MASH was such a good fit for him. He wrote uh, and got an award, a humanitarian award um, on that show uh, for, for uh, the episode called Yes Sir, That's My Baby. And it was about uh, American GIs who were uh, getting Korean uh, women pregnant and um, then either abandoning the kids or wanting to bring them back to the United States and being unable to. Um, and it was a beautiful script. It's funny, you know, in all this coronavirus pandemic right now, we've been sort of, you know, going into the garage and cleaning up. And I found a couple copies of my dad's script the other day and uh, was flipping through it. And it's... So yeah, that sort of very heartfelt, yet humorous mm -hmm. slice of life kind of thing. Right, that's the kind of humor most people really do cling to and we relate to yeah. because it's it's real. Yeah, although I do have to say um, Mel Brooks, uh, that kind of stuff, you know, is, is, is my jam. Yeah. When I had my son, the movie that I took to the hospital with me to sort of like <laughs> breathe with and all that was Young Frankenstein. That was my sort of calming. Yeah. This is the one that's gonna, you know, help me through because I just needed to laugh in the agony of it all. I just watched on Netflix. Childbirth. I think it's Bill Burr stand up. Do you know him, the Bill Burr? I don't. Mm. It's super crass and just really hard he's from boston and that that kind of humor makes me belly laugh like just giggle <laughs> because it's nothing i mean it's just it's so opposite i guess of yeah. of me but it's yeah. just really crass and funny and, and that's my kind of my favorite humor um and it's great to be able to tap into all of that mm -hmm. uh, you know i sometimes when i'm feeling just like the the anxiety and the sadness of what's going on in the world right now mm. um I turn on The Office. God, that show makes me laugh. Same. Even when it jumped off the rails and all that kind of stuff, but The Office, Michael Scott, what an idiot. And I just, I can't love him so much. Totally. When did you, <laughs> when did you realize this was for you, this, this world of acting? Was it the Actors Gang in LA? Well, it was sort of always, you know, I was, um, I was uh, an extrovert, and I always did school plays. I always ran for school office. Um, I was the first female president at um, Point Vicente Elementary School. Yes. Thank you very much. Yeah, the first female president of the school. Um, what, are you, what, are you, what are you a fifth in fifth grade, like 10? I don't know. Always it does, bossy. It does not matter. You were the yeah. first. That's it. I was the first. Um, so, I, you know, I was always interested. I never really thought about doing anything else. And then I did a couple of TV things when I was in um, middle school and high school. And then there was one point where I could have done a series. It was called Hello, Larry with McLean Stevenson. Um, 
But my dad said to me, I, you know, what do you want to do? Do you want to be in school or do you want to go to work? And I wanted to stay in school. I really, I enjoyed not so much classes, but I really liked the social <laughs> aspect of school. And I, I thought, oh, I'll miss that too much. Um, but my, one of the things that was the greatest influence was when I was 12, I went to visit my aunt Jennifer Bassey, who if anybody is an All My Children fan, um, she was on All My Children for years and she played um, Marion and she talked like this and she, everybody was darling. Everybody was absolutely darling. She had a, famously had an affair with Tad, who was her like daughter's husband or something, you know, all that of stuff. Of course. But she was on All My Children for years. But I went to stay with her when I was 12 for I like to say it was for the summer because that's what it felt like I'm sure it was probably three weeks if even that but I always tell people it was for the summer and she was understudying California Suite on Broadway and I would go to work with her but the beginning of that I flew in by myself I was 12 my flight was delayed and then rerouted so I actually landed in Newark instead of Kennedy and had to take a bus over. By the time I got to Kennedy Airport, I knew she had to already be at the theater. So I was a little nervous about what was going to happen. There were no cell phones or anything. Right. I get off the plane, or pardon me, the bus that had bussed me from Newark, and there's a woman there to meet me. And she said, excuse me, are you Kate Mulligan? Oh, I am. She said, your aunt asked me to take care of you. She had to go to the theater, do the show. I was like, great. So we get my luggage, we go to her car, and I said, so how do you know my aunt? She said, oh, I just met her in the bar as, I was, as she was waiting for you, because I was supposed to pick up somebody who didn't make their flight. They had just met in a bar. <laughs> and I wound up going home with that woman and spending the night with her family, and her family was having a family reunion, and I called my dad from this house in, I don't know where I was, the Bronx, Brooklyn, uptown or downtown, I have no idea. He said, where are you? I said, I don't know. Oh, my gosh. I'm at a family reunion. But I said, everybody sounds like Rhoda, which was a big <laughs> show at the time. It was off of Mary Tyler Moore. <laughs> and so I spent the night at her house, and she brought me to Jennifer the next day. And they remained friends for decades. So I stayed with her that summer. And I would go to the theater with her every night and um, sit in her dressing room. And then afterwards... We would, um, she would dress me up in her clothes and we would go to Sardi's and all these, I was 12. Right. We would go to all these fabulous restaurants for dinner at, you know, midnight. And then we'd go to Edie Gourmet's and sing around the piano until, you know, all hours. And I thought, how, how do you get to do this? And then the next day, you know, she'd get in a cab and she'd take me along to her auditions and she would sing in the back of the cab Oh, kiss today, goodbye. And I was like, you are my goddess. I want to Fabulous. be you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, so did, do you feel like you did kind of, are, are you following, I mean, you're following those footsteps a lot. Yeah. I mean, you know, I wanted these people who would, you know, even like sort of when my dad, when my dad was still in Maryland working and my brother, Mike Mulligan, um, he was doing a lot of theater at a local theater there called Alney Theater, which does great, um, uh, it's a regional theater that's still, I, was, I, I went and visited there about two months ago when I was in D.C. Um, 
So my brother Mike was doing plays there, and there were a lot of shows that would sort of start out there, maybe do like an out-of-town tryout before they would go to New York. And we had this big old 200-year-old house on like 200 acres that eventually, you know, was sold off. Um, and so a lot of these actors, because some of them were my aunts and uncles, would come and stay at our house mm-hmm. while they were doing, instead of staying in company housing at Olney Theater, they'd come stay with us. And um, gosh, like Chris Sarandon was there. And so Susan Sarandon was there, who I ironically met again later on because she was with Tim Robbins for so many years. Um, And so I would stay up. I remember, and I was probably like three, four years old, and I would sneak out of my room and go down the stairs, probably slide down the banister. Mm -hmm. And I just went to this house two months ago. It was incredible. Um, and I would peek around chairs and I would listen to these incredibly creative, funny people up all night, telling stories, laughing, sharing. I mean, it was, and I think that was really the seed that was planted in me about that, that world, Mm -hmm. that world of just camaraderie and friendship and, humor and arguments about politics. There were always arguments about politics. Yeah. Well, there's something about, again, I, you know, I I did plays in theater until, you know, just through college, Um, like community type theater stuff, the best, just these like, you know, small theater houses. Yeah. There's no judgment in this group of, of actors. They, they love you no matter what. If you sing and it's off key, they say, it's off key, try it again. I mean, there's just yeah. something so loving about about these folks that you're essentially putting everything inside of you out on a stage for everyone to see and judge. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, you know, and so as a result, you know, I, I was talking about this with my friends the other day about, you know, in a real friendship, how you get to be authentic. You don't have to walk on eggshells around each other. Mm. You, um, cause sometimes, you know, in your family you do, you're trying to avoid, you know, that same old argument or you just want to get along because you don't see each other that often anymore and you live on opposite sides of the country. Um, and so when you are together, you just sort of let things go and make the best of it. But when you're with your group of real friends, you get to tell each other the truth with, I mean, it's real family. It's your chosen family. Mm-hmm. You get to be authentically yourself. You get you have to own up to your mistakes. You get called out on your shit, and um, you can. And the the beauty is, you 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 learn the, the the ability to apologize and to own up. I'm so sorry I hurt your feelings, and not even like it wasn't my intention. It doesn't really matter what your intentions were. You did hurt somebody's feelings. You say I'm sorry, and and you get back to and you get back to having a good time. But mm-hmm. that that. Telling telling your friends the truth and being able to hear the truth is 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 an incredible thing. One thousand percent. And the older I get, yeah. the more I realize that group gets smaller and smaller as you get older. For sure, for sure. It tends to shrink on you a little bit. And there's something about yeah. bearing your soul. You know, even um, I'm a shower singer. I, I love singing. <laughs> But if but if you said, hey, can you can you bust a note right? No way. It's too right. It's too much. But yeah. if you're in front of your people, you just no one has to ask you. You you are singing in front of them. You're just singing. It's a funny thing because you know I've sung in shows, um, 
here at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival and uh, and at the Actors Gang, and I find singing to be the most terrifying, vulnerable. I, I there's nothing. I have been naked on stage, walking around. I mean, just hello world, which you know. That's a bigger story. I mean, what the hell was I thinking? I'm writing that but down I right now. I think I would rather do that. I would rather do that. It is so, so scary mm-hmm. because it, singing comes from such a place and you have to be relaxed or it gets stuck in your throat or the voice shakes, right? A few years ago, um, I auditioned for Beauty and the Beast at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival because they want to, can you sing? And, you know, if you did a little ditty, that's one thing, but can you stand? And deliver, you know, so I was auditioning for Mrs. Potts, really just to try to get over my fear of singing in front of people. And um, because I can sing, but I can't, you know, I can't, yeah, yeah. yeah. I wasn't trained to do that. And so I listened to really beautiful Broadway singers and like, well, that's not how I sound. So I must not be good, but I think I could learn to do that. Anyway, so I auditioned for this show. And then I wound up getting this email saying, we're offering you the part of Mrs. Potts. And I reread it and I showed it to my husband and I said, does that say I'm the understudy? Or does that say I'm Mrs. Potts? (laughs) And he goes, you're Mrs. Potts. And I, I was scared every, I was scared from that moment until we closed the show. I was so scared. And the way that it was staged, I would walk up this flight of stairs and stand at the top of the, uh, what they call the inner above on the outdoor stage at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, the Elizabethan Theater. And, um, you know, the Beast and Belle would dance and I had to sing the song, Tale as Old as Time. I mean, it's like the song. And I would walk up that staircase like I was going to a guillotine. I was, I was like, please let lightning come and strike me down. Why the hell have I chosen this? What am I thinking? Uh, well, I saw Hairspray. I thought you were fabulous. I saw Very it twice. Kind. I couldn't. I mean, <laughs> it, you were so nasty in that part. So nasty. Oh, so good, though. So, so good. Nasty. It was fun. And Chris Moore, who directed that play, Christopher Liam Moore, who's one of my closest friends, um, and he is Bill Rausch's husband, who was the artistic director so many years at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival and a director there prior to that. Um, we'd all worked together and been friends in Los Angeles, which is how my husband and I wound up coming to OSF. But Chris Moore directed that show, Hairspray, and he had said to me, if people don't boo you when you're walking down the street, you are not getting in deep enough. I want people to hate you. You're a horrible, racist, hideous human being. Yeah. Yeah. Great. It was yeah, right. And then it did the pressure off right because it's not about sound good when you sing this song right because if you're thinking about that you're screwed because you just won't and then you're not telling the story right right I mean that's the great thing about fantastic singers um you know Frank Sinatra known for by the end of his career not having the best voice but he could tell a story like nobody's business my husband says that Elvis Costello is our generation's um Frank Sinatra, because that man can sing a song just from his gut, from, I mean, his insides are just displayed out, which is why my son is named Declan, 
because Elvis Costello's real name is Declan McManus. I love that. So when my we found out we were pregnant, we were talking about names, and I wanted an Irish name. And um, Bill Roush and Chris Moore had already, they were having a, a child at the same time, and they were naming their first son Liam. And uh, so Liam was taken. And then Brent and I were driving around. He goes, what about Declan? I went, I love that name. Love it. How, how did you meet your hubby, Brent Hinckley? I met him at the Actors Gang. Okay. And this is, this is a true story. And I was talking to him about this the other day. You know, we're together a lot right now. Um, <laughs> and, we, and we always have been. So he was one of the original um, creators of the Actors Gang Theater Company. And I was at a workshop where you literally people just gather around and maybe somebody has an idea of, okay, here we knew we were going to be doing this particular play. So you say, I'm going to work on this character tonight. And then you just start throwing things on um, and pretending to block scenes. Or you just, if you don't have a particular play you're working on, then there's sort of a, a, a template of you're going to work on stock characters like from Commedia um, but anyway, so this was my first one and I was super, super nervous. I'd heard about this theater company and, um, I was up on this stage. It was a, it was a sort of a classroom size room at uh, UCLA that they were allowed to use after hours. And this is well after everybody graduated from UCLA, but they still have maintained a really close relationship with, with them. Um, and this guy walked by sort of in the background and I mean I literally remember the first time I laid eyes on him he had a migraine he was miserable he was leaving the room to go lie down but there was something about I don't I, I was only even in profile I mean I didn't I had no idea but I just sparked at him and I I watched him for the next I don't know Five years we had he directed me in some plays he um, was in some plays with me he rarely spoke to me even when he directed me in plays uh, I always thought he hated me and um, but he was all about the work he was so creative and so funny um, and after you know quite some time I mean I will say he was married um, and then, so he was off limits. So that's why there was never any, oh, I can't let him know. And, uh, so then when he and his wife decided to part ways, um, I was very happy when he said, after this is all settled, would you like to go on a date with me? And I was like, I've been watching you for five or six. I mean, I just thought he was, I love the way he talked to people. I love the way he treated people as a director he was so creative when he was on stage. He was so funny and he was quiet. He's such an introvert. I really? Mean, I mean, well, look at me. I mean, there's, <laughs> and my son really has a, a, a combo of the both of us. But so Brent and I um, started dating uh, in the latter part of 1993. And we, was he was he crushing uh, on you too this whole time? Well, he was married, so no. Um, but I mean, I think that once the, the sort of that um, 
once you, the constraints were off, mm-hmm. maybe he just started looking at me in a different way. Or, or yes, I don't know. I mean, maybe in private, I'll tell you. <laughs> when we hang up. But, <laughs> when we hang up. Um, but yeah, and so, yeah, that was 1993 that we started dating. Um, we got married in uh, 2000. And so we've been together since 1993. Wow, you guys waited quite a few years before you tied the knot. Yeah, because, you know, he had been married. I mean, it's such a long story mm. because then he dumped me and it was horrible and I was brokenhearted and I couldn't get out of bed for six months. Oh and I was God. like, what? I thought this was forever. And I, he's like, I was married. I need to. And he was right. If we had stayed together after the sort of, you know, drama, because there was drama around us getting together, it was it was a lot. Um, but I was like, I, I, this is, this is so brave. This is for love. This is forever. And then he dumped my ass. And I was like, what the actual are you insane? What? You don't dump me. I was just like, I don't get, this is, was forever. And mm-hmm. then he, you know, but he was right. He needed to do, he needed to be a single guy. He'd got married at like 21. Um, and uh, so I don't, you know, I, I credit him because I don't think we'd be together now if you he know, had not done that. Yeah, such a similar story here. I, my husband was previously married, married young, and we were together for a very long time before we got married. Um, mostly, I think, for both of us to make sure, yeah. like, because... I was not going to be this girl who I'm not going to get married and then get divorced because it's just too yeah. hard. Like I just didn't. And you not don't want to be the transition girl either. No way. Or um, one of twenty. Yeah. Tw- transition girls. <laughs> Thank so, you very much. So I feel you. I feel you there. I, I feel like we have. <laughs> this is a conversation you and I will have over some wine. Over wine. Later day. <laughs> later day. I can't. You guys, yeah. so you guys get married in the year 2000. You're working this whole time, though. You're together. You're working. Yeah. You're both doing, yeah. acting, yeah. doing what you love. Yeah. Where are you fantastic. during all this? L.A.? So we're living in, in L.A. We had, And then by this time, um, Declan was born. And uh, so we moved out of Hollywood. We lived right off of Melrose. It was really fun. Uh, and we were down the street from the actors gang. I literally could walk to the theater and uh, it was great, although I wouldn't recommend it at night. Um, and then we moved to the Valley when Declan was little. Um, and just, you know, Brent, if you look at his resume, he's been in every TV show. He's, I mean, his, it's, you know, he just worked all the time. And I did every commercial known to man I have sold every product on TV you can possibly imagine. Um, but it was an interesting thing. You know, I, I, I loved, I, I loved, I loved being in, on television. It was fun, but it was something I didn't feel like I was very good at. Um, I felt self-conscious when I would go into audition rooms because I just didn't have the confidence. Like I really, I, I, I just would get nervous about, well, what do they want? And I'm going to a theater audition. I never had that nerve. I'd be like, I, I know exactly what's expected of me here. Um, and it, I, I, I'm interested to take the confidence I have in myself now out back into that realm, that sort of that medium, mm-hmm. um, which is what I was in the midst of doing 
uh, this year. But so we were at the Actors Gang. It was going swimmingly. By this time, the Actors Gang had moved to Culver City um, to a place called the Ivy. The Ivy is it the substation? It's an old train station. Um, it's gorgeous. It's still there. It's in Culver City. And um, I get a call from Bill Rausch one night saying, I've just been made the artistic director of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and I would love to offer you a contract. And I was like, well, what, what does that mean? He says, well, it's 10 months. I was like, oh, my God, because in the theater in L.A., you, there's no such thing. You would run a show for six weeks. If it did well, you, you could run, but it was like on the weekends. It was, you know, it wasn't that. And I had done shows at South Coast Rep. I had done shows at the Mark Taper. But, you know, it's a two or three month gig. So this was like, wow, a really steady job of doing a play for that long sounds incredible. Um, but also, who the hell moves to Oregon to be an actor? <laughs> no, that's so stupid. Why would we do that? No. Uh, Are you crazy? Uh, and so, you know, then he goes, well, why don't you just come over and we'll chat about it. And so I went over. He was um, at a friend's house, at his friend's house, Amy Brenneman, who, was down, who lived down the street, um, in a, down the street, but in a much nicer house than, than I did. Um, hi, Amy. And uh, so then he had a meeting with Brent because he also was directing Brent in plays. So he offered us both a contract and we were like, OK, we'll try it for a year. And we were in a rental house in the valley and we packed up all of our stuff into one of those pod things mm -hmm. and moved it up because, you know, we didn't have a permanent address. We're like, we'll bring it up, we'll put it in storage and we'll move back down to L.A. in a year when this contract is up. Cut to, wow, 12 years wow. later. This year was my 12th season. And then this year was Brent's 13th season because I opted to not come back to OSF this year. Because I wanted that, I felt like there was something tapping on my shoulder. I've, you know, since I was 12 and stayed with my aunt mm -hmm. in New York, I've wanted that experience. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there, I have, you know, a lot of self-esteem issues and nerves about it. And I had a child. And so being able to have this steady job here and raise my son in the beautiful Ashland, Oregon, um, and he's, you know, creative and he's outlandish and you know, he was accepted and encouraged and it was a really great community for him. Yeah. Um, and he could have his own world and soccer and do all that stuff while I worked right down the street. Um, and then he went off to college and I was like, I think it's time for me to go. I think it's time for me to go to New York. Oh man. And that's, yeah, that's ballsy. It was crazy. I mean, it was great. And so I felt this unbelievable, I felt like I was 17 and embarking but at 17 with like experience and confidence and a voice and something to say and people to support and uplift and I couldn't wait I was I get chills thinking about it and everything in me was like yes this is you know trust your instincts this is right this is it so I said I'm not going to come back I shipped seven boxes and two suitcases back east then Bill said to Bill Roush said, do you want to do a production of the mother road of mother road at arena stage? I was like, yeah, cause that will get me, that will get me East on a job. This is amazing. So I had just closed, closed, um, mother road. I guess that was like late February. And then 
all my boxes and all my suitcases were in New York and I stayed with Bill Roush and Chris Moore at their place. So kindly opened their doors to me for a week. And then I moved in to sort of house sit at this apartment in Chelsea. And I was there for two days and came home because then the COVID like it was like it's sheltering in place, get out now or you're not leaving. And I came home. Kate, that hits me in the gut. That really like just, and so I can't even imagine for you right now. Um, ugh. It was, it was, you know, I felt lucky that, um, that we were nervous. Like, do we fly? Is it irresponsible um, for me to fly? And, uh, but at the end of the day, by this time, Declan was home from school. So it was just Brent and Declan were here. And I thought I can't. you know, for me, I knew the right choice was I'm going to take the risk and I'm going to go home. Mm -hmm. And this was before, I mean, I flew home um, and nobody was wearing a mask on the plane. The plane was really empty. The airport, Kennedy was really empty, which was so bizarre. And then I flew home and then I sort of quarantined myself um, in my house and we wore masks and gloves for two weeks because I had traveled. And I called my local doctor here and asked if I could be tested. And at that point, This was um, the very, very end of March. I couldn't get any tests, um, but she said, you know, if you experience this, that, and the other, we'll see what we can do. Um, And then, you know, couldn't and didn't. And then after about two and a half weeks, we all sort of started easing up with each other. Right. And they've been home ever since. Are you planning on still chasing that dream? I am. As soon as... As soon as I'm allowed to, I'll go back. And part of the fear was, you know, from my husband and Dan Parker, my dear friend and supporter, and Christopher Liam Moore and Bill Roush were like, you're you're not allowed to go back to Ashland and stay. You know, you can't you can't give up because this has been a roadblock. And so the challenge has been, if if I meant to, tr- to trust my instincts, what just happened? Because everything in me told me that that was the right thing to do. And so I'm taking this time right now um, because after like the excitement of being back with my boys sort of settled down because I was really homesick. I really missed them. Um, After that settled down, I got, you know, I got sad. I got depressed. Mm -hmm. Um, It was also the first time in 13, probably 16 years, I didn't have something to work on. So all that energy that I'm usually focused on, my anxiety, um, you know, I, that's how I handle my anxiety as I, as I work and I, tr- I channel it into, into something. And then suddenly you're just left with yourself and little demons that you thought you had slayed 20 years ago go, no, 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 you didn't really deal with me. You got busy and you got distracted but your issues are all still down here just waiting to come up and slap you in the face. Have you been dealing with those? And, yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, for me, you know, as a woman sort of, um, you know, growing up in Los Angeles in the 80s and the 90s and in the early 2000s, um, you know, I have a lot of uh, body issues, a lot of what is a woman supposed to look like? Girls I went to high school with were, you know, swimsuit models and went on to become Playboy models and were, I mean, they were some of the most 
unbelievable. I mean, you know, I still look at them and I was looking at an old yearbook the other day and girls who were 17, I remember at the time going, you look 27. And I still look at them and go, geez, you really did look 20. I mean, you, you really were. So there was so much comparison when I was growing up and, you know, develop into eating disorders and body issues and all that kind of stuff. And really hadn't thought about it, thought like that was not anything I had to deal with anymore. Yeah. And then suddenly I'm in my house and I don't have any distraction and all those things came back up. So the, the beauty is now, I'll tell you a story, like I haven't been doing that for the last, <clears throat> anyway, but it was my, it was my husband's birthday. And so since, you know, we can't do much, I thought, well, I'm going to make his favorite breakfast. I don't cook. I'm going to make his favorite lunch. I don't cook. I'm going to make his favorite dinner. I don't cook. So it was stressful. And, uh, but I was really into it and, you know, I had margaritas going and it was really fun. And then the next day there were all these leftovers and I basically just stood in the kitchen with a fork and ate anything I could find. And then my boys were outside playing, um, croquet. We have a, a, an acre of land in the backyard. And since we don't know what to do with it, we just put up a croquet thing. Um, said, I'm going to make you guys some sandwiches and some potato chips. So we had a leftover full family size bag of potato chips left over from Brent's birthday the day before, which we never used. So I came out with the sandwiches, <laughs> such a silly story, came out and I said to them, I was going to put potato chips, but I dropped them on the floor. So I had to throw them all away. And they're like, okay, no deal. And then I stopped and I went, that was a lie. I ate the whole bag. And they're like, that's fine. It's like, no, 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 you don't understand. I ate a family size bag of potato chips <laughs> and I hid in my bathroom while I was eating them. So here's the point. It was shameful. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't want it. So I'm asking you, and this might be a horrible comparison, but I said to my boys, I need you to look at my food issues like a heroin addict. Mm -hmm. So I, I, it's not a cute, funny, oh, you ate a bag of potato chips. It's self-harm. It's shameful. It's so embarrassing. And part of it is the secrecy. So I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to say it. I'm going to own it. I'm asking you for help. And then um, it really helped me to yeah. just not be secretive about it and full of shame about it because I, I couldn't believe it was happening after all these years, that binge eating where you just yeah. are like crying while you're finishing a foot long sub. That's so many girls, especially yeah. everywhere. Yeah. That, that happens all the time, every single all the day. Yeah. Yeah. All the time, every single day. Do you and I Yeah, go ahead. Well, do you feel like do you feel like all of these issues that you've been dealing with because of this pandemic, because you're really having to yeah. like look at yourself in a mirror, yeah. do you feel like now chasing that dream, going back east and doing what you really want to do, dealing with all of this is going to make because you know, you could say yeah. if, if you moved and you're still dealing with all of these issues, there could have been a world of trouble. Trish, that is it. One thousand percent because i really i really am trying to figure out look this is pan this pandemic is not about me but on an individual basis what can i learn from it what am i meant to glean from this yeah. and i for me it is you still had a lot of work to do before you had the confidence you thought you had to go in and really be authentic in a room where you're not looking for approval you're you're look you're, you're seeking a job, but you're not seeking approval. 
I don't need a pat on the head to tell me I'm a good little girl or that I'm pretty or that I'm all that bullshit. I just need to be the best person for the job. And you might not agree with it, but if I walk out of that room going, but I think so. And that was my, that was my interpretation of what I would do with this part. And if it's not what you want, that is none of my business. So I think you're, ex you're exactly right. It's given me this opportunity to really have to, with no distraction, deal with myself in an incredibly authentic yeah. way um, that, that I can then carry that woman. I was talking to my friend Tracy Young about this, who is an old friend who directed some shows at OSF, but I met her at the Actors Gang. And I was sent, because she sent me all these wonderful books about about dealing with grief and dealing with trauma. Cause I called her and was like, I don't know what the hell is happening to me. Um, because there are much bigger problems in the world. And, um, and I said to her, I think for me, it's like, it's not my little girl that I need to get in touch with. It's not that girl that needs a voice. It's the woman mm -hmm. in me that needs a voice. It's the grown up saying, please let me out. Please deal with these child issues that you've had. For, from feeling, you know, your father's death and your family was gone and you were lost alone in LA and all that kind of stuff that was all still there. Yeah. And, and, uh, so that's what, I, yeah, I, I work on it every single day. I get up in the morning, I went out and I've, I, I have bought and returned this book or donated it so many times called the artist's way. Maybe you've heard of it. Um, and it's about getting up, getting up and really trying to get in touch with your creativity. It's a beautiful book. Um, shoot, I'm, I have a copy of it around, but I can't think of the artist's name. Cameron, I think is her last name. I'll look it but it's up. called The Artist's Way. Okay. And it's all about you get up in the morning and you write. You, it's called, there's this thing called the morning pages. Everybody who's going to be listening to this who's any old, is older than 45 is going, oh my God, I've done that so many times. Uh, Julia it's Cameron. An incredible tool. Pardon? Julia Cameron. Yes. Okay. It's the a beautiful, way. helpful book. Okay. And you, it gives you tasks to get your own inner demons out of the way. All the negative things you say to yourself, like, I'm not good enough. I'm not creative enough. Um, this is derivative. It's been done before. You don't have anything interesting to say. Nobody would want to hear what you have to say. And you get all that out to get to the truth of what do you want to create? Because I do. I want to create. I want to, I want to, I want to be a part of that community. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think I have something to say, and it's an interesting time right now with George Floyd and with what's happening as a middle-aged white woman, the platform is not mine right now, nor should it be. I want to listen. I want to be of service. I want to be, um, an advocate and an ally. Doesn't mean I can't sit at home and clear out my sh so I can be a better, more confident person to help that. Yeah, yeah, a, a lot of things that have been going on the last few days have put so much into perspective for me, and yeah. things that were important a few days ago are just no longer important. Yeah. So you do find yeah. that. Do you think auditioning and getting accepted for auditions or getting the role or getting denied the role plays any part in that, that demon side for actors? You know, I mean, yeah, and that's why you have to do that work. That you have to be you have to be so full of self love that it rolls off your back, mm. um, because you're you're not going to get 
every job you audition. Right. It's not it's not humanly possible. And so rejection is a huge part of it. What helped me a lot in LA was I would go to commercial auditions and I would go to sometimes four a day. And you book maybe, if you get two a year, you're like, dude, I'm rolling in success. <laughs> um, so you really get accustomed to that. But that's a different thing. You're in a room for 10 seconds. But when you're auditioning for a play that you have like really delved into and you've done your homework and you figured out the, the whys and the wheres and the who this person is and you, you bring that into a room and you vomit it up for people to judge, judge and decide upon what their opinion is. And that's, this is an old, uh, you know, uh, 12 step thing. Your opinion of me is not my business. It's none of my business. And so that's when, you know, you just, you have a side hustle. My husband and I both work for Blackstone Audio and we record audiobooks. You and I talked about this before because you'd be great at it, Trish. Um, and it's great. You get to go in a room and put on a set of headphones and sit and read into a microphone and tell stories, just tell stories. And so I don't have, you know, the fear comes from when you go into these theater and TV auditions. What if I never get, not only what, what if I don't get the job, but what if I don't get another audition? Because you don't even have control of that. Right. So control is a big thing, right? And that's where food issues come in because mm -hmm. it's controlling what something. What you can in your control, life. yes. Yeah. 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 Where do you, um, where do you so, find for these roles, for, especially for theater, like what is your homework? Like, like what does it take when you go into an, uh, an audition? And I don't know if you want yeah. to give me an example of a, a role you tried out for and got, but where do you, yeah. as an actor, where do you find that? Where does it come from? Where's the homework? Well, so the homework always is read the play over and over and over again. And then because you're not, um, it's not, when you go into an audition, it shouldn't be the finished version of that character, right? You are there to be in a community of actors who get to build that play together mm. but this is your time to go in with confidence and choices and be that person for that time tim robbins used to say when i go into an and, and uh, he would say when i go in, into an audition i'm not there to seek approval as i walk in like i already have the job so i walk in and it's not arrogance it's confidence mm -hmm. I'm not being grateful for being in the room. I'm not just there being small, tell me what to do. I come in with, I am, I am the fully embodied version of this woman. And so I read the play over and over and over again. I read about what other characters say about her and maybe that'll give me a little bit of information. I look at the, the sides, which are the pages they give you of the scene maybe you're auditioning with and you make choices. I've got this line. Let's say the line is, I'm going to move the chair from the corner into the center of the room. You know, a nothing of a line, but why is she doing it? What, mm -hmm. What is the reason behind it? Make a choice about how she feels about moving that chair. Is she pissed off about it? I don't want to move that chair. I'm going to move that chair. Or is it, you know, I think it'd be beautiful. It was, oh, I just discovered that I'm going to move that chair over here. Right? So you make it your own. You yeah. make these choices and you back it up with the truth of the play or the script. Why does she feel that way about it? Where's the truth behind that? 
And so that's what they mean when they say make a choice. And that's what casting directors and directors want to see. Make some choices. Give me something mm-hmm. to play with. You know, I, my, my sandbox is my body, my voice, these words, and I'm just going to play. Right. And it doesn't matter if I'm right or wrong. This is coming from me, from an authentic place of my imagination, my heart. And then the director uh, will say, okay, that's great. Let's make an adjustment. Don't be so pissed off about the chair having to move. Maybe she's really sad about it. Maybe it's been in that corner because that's where her dad sat for all those years. And now somebody says, I don't like it there anymore. And so let's try that. And it's not necessarily because that's the right thing. It's just they, they, they want to see, can you take direction? Oh, yeah. Or are you so solidly into, no, 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 this is the only way it can be done. Um, take direction. And so- also because I don't know what my scene partner is going to be doing. Right. Is he attacking me with that? So I've got to come back with an authentic response. Mm -hmm. So I can't decide at home what this scene is going to look like because it's not a monologue. There's another person here playing with me. I had a director tell me once acting is not acting. It's reacting. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. When you when you took on the role of Velma, for instance, because she is completely opposite of you. You are this beautifully kind human being and. She's nasty of like the nastiest of the nasty. Yeah. What did yeah. you, what was the homework there? Like, did you, did you challenge or uh, not challenge? Um, Could you hear that? I just belched. I hope you couldn't hear that. No, I didn't. <laughs> That's fantastic though. This is um, real. Yeah. So what was the challenge? Um, to not, not shy away from it. Look, I was meant to, uh, you know, she's in that play. I meant to be there and bring the truth. I mean, just rampant all over our country right now. Yeah. About a horribly racist woman. Yeah. And if I'm going to shy away from that, it doesn't give my scene partners mm-hmm. anywhere to go. I, you have to be. So you, I mean, look, we all have ugliness inside of us. We all have anger, fear. We can all be cruel human beings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I have been cruel in my life. I've been heartless in my life. I've been selfish in my life. So that's all in me as a human being. And I just can't apologize because it is, does no service to the truth of racism. Right. So if you're going to play a racist, you better play that part and give pe- people a reason to hate you. Yeah. Well, you can't be amazing. a kind racist. No, you were you were amazing in that role. Um, when were you naked on stage? Thank you so much for asking. Um, it was a wonderful play at the Actors Gang. It was called Mein Kampf. Um, it was based on a play, not the book, but it was it was a play, um, and it it was sort of like the making of Hitler. So Hitler was a painter before he became a murderer, um, and so the story was, if I remember correctly young Hitler sort of like goes to art school and gets denied and um, is a horrible satire. At one point, as a young Hitler, he goes in to get a haircut. You can imagine the haircut he comes up with, right? (laughs) He becomes Hitler. So I was supposed to play the sort of little girl who would wash the feet of um, this older Jewish man. And I was there to be of sort of service to him, not not in a sexual way. Um, but of subservient to him. So I, at one point, this young girl, because she's just supposed to be a little girl, um, takes off all of her clothes to wash his feet. 
And so, um, I mean, I, it's written as a little girl, but it's supposed to be played by a woman. Right. And so I did that. And as a, as it, I, I still can't, because like we've discussed my body issues, we've discussed my food issues. I mean, it was, there was not, it was not necessarily, I still didn't know why I did. I can't imagine what made me do that. And so, but there was one night where I was, and it was like, we did it. It was professional. It was, you know, just sort of brushed over. And I was like, whatever, you're an actor, you take off your clothes and nobody cares. And this is what my body looks like. And it was all a lie. But <laughs> there was one night where I was washing his feet, the feet of this actor, and the water splashed up on me. And I swear to you, I literally, it like it woke me up and I looked down and I saw myself naked in front of an audience and I went, what have I done? Yeah. What was I thinking? It was and it wasn't just like I could sit and suck it all in. I had to get up and walk around and fill the bucket. I was like, what the actual hell? <laughs> and one night after the show, um, a friend said to me, have your parents come to see this? And I said, well, my mom lives in Iceland and my dad's dead. So I think that's part of it. Like, oh, well. But my bro some, of my, some of my brother didn't see it, but he told a bunch of his old high school friends about it and a group of them came to oh see it. These old high school kids who I hadn't seen since I was, you know, really young. Oh. Oh. They're like, dude, Kate's naked on They're stage. Like, oh, that's Kate Mulligan naked. Because in <laughs> high school no no one saw me without like a sweater and wool pants. I was quite I mean oh. I was a cheerleader. Never in a short little skirt. Wait, you were a cheerleader? A shocking. Yes. I know, isn't it shocking? Um, that energy, so, yeah. So I'm what I'm curious as what what Brent says about you going back east to follow the stream, right? He um, he's such. You know, we had to talk about it because I said I I, of course I'm not going to do this without his partnership in it. Mm -hmm. It can't be done without his partnership. We have a child. We have a mortgage. We have bills. You know, we have college tuition. Totally. Um. But I remember when we were even in LA, it was before I had my equity card. And he said to me, if I, he said, I will pay for your equity card, which was like, you know, 1500 bucks maybe at the time. I don't even remember. It was a lot of money that I didn't have. And he was working a lot more than I was in TV and film. Um, oh, sorry, I'm gonna interrupt you. What's an equity card? Yeah. Oh, an equity card. So thank you for asking. So uh, Actors Equity is the um, uh, Professional Actors Union. Ah. And you can't be in a union play and get union wages without your equity card. Gotcha. Um, and for TV, it's Screen Actors Guild for TV and film. So there's a SAG card, Screen Actors Guild, or equity. Thank you for the question. Yes. Um, so he said to me, I will pay for you to do that if you tell me you'll audition for some musicals. Because I would, you know, sing around the house. And I was like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm not going to go audition for those musicals. So he's always been a pusher of mine, right? He's always been, you know, you put yourself in the forefront. Don't be, don't be hesitant. Don't be. So he's always been a champion of mine. He's been my cheerleader and you know, he's known that this has been my dream. I've always wanted to do this. I did a short run four or five month run, uh, at the public theater in New York with an actor's gang show, um, from two in 2004. I loved it so much. Uh, 
but I've never been there and like done the thing. So he was like, no, I'm in. I'll take a full season contract here at OSF so that one of us has a steady paycheck. Um, and I lined this up for about a year and a half. I made sure that I had work through Blackstone Audio because they have offices in New York also. Um, so I sort of laid this groundwork and you know, set it in motion. But it can't be done without his support. Right. And the tr- it was so funny because when we were maybe it was about three weeks ago, the plan was that I would come back for a visit in June to see the shows, Declan would be home from school. Um, so in being here with him recently, we just looked at each other and said, we never would have lasted without seeing each other until June. It, we wouldn't have been able to do it. There's no way. So it'll be a lot of figuring it out as we go, mm-hmm. because with his 10 month contract, you know, you don't miss shows. It's not like he could come and visit me. And we didn't know what our finances would be. So it's not like I can just get on a plane and come home. Right. Um, so we'll, we'll work it out as we go. And he has said so beautifully, if it turns out that you love New York, um, we'll make it work. And I'll, I'll come and we'll partner there. You know, he is a great actor. He's a great director. And, um, you know, I'll go into auditions and a lot of people know who he is. And they'll literally be like, oh, yeah, that was great. What's happening with Brent? Is Brent going to spread his wings? Does Brent maybe want to come to New York? I'm like, it's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I am. I'm definitely pulling for both of you in this in this dream. Although, don't move to New York. Stay here. Well, we have a house here that, you know, the aforementioned acre with the croquet. Um, we have a creek in our backyard. So we're really lucky here that we can get outside of the house and yeah. still be home. Yeah. Um, I have a hammock between two trees right near the water, and it's in my backyard. It's crazy. We're from L.A. I mean, what the <laughs> hell? Um, so, yeah, I mean, we – I will – OSF will always be an artistic home for me. Like the actors gang is still an artistic home Mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I, I feel like I was born at the actors gang, but I grew up here. Um, The opportunities Mm. that I was given here, streetcar named desire. I got to be Blanche Dubois. I got to sing in front of all those people on the outdoor stage. I got to tell beautiful stories. Um, It's been, I am so incredibly grateful to the life that I have here. Um, and so I don't want that to end. I mean, I love it here. Yeah. And my son came home from college with such a new appreciation for, God, I love this place so home. much. Mm-hmm. So this is home. Yeah. This is home. That's that's a, a dream of work. Um, but my heart is in Ashland. Well, I'm still, I'm, I'm pulling for you for sure, for both of you. Um, hey. And I, I kind of want to wrap up, but I still have a few questions for you. What is your favorite part, especially about a play? What is your favorite part about it? The rehearsals. Rehearsal. Why? It, um, because there's no, there's no expectation of a result. You get to, I mean, talk about playing. You get to bring out every aspect. You get to react to everything going on mm. where nothing has been set yet, nothing is set in stone. So there's no pressure to achieve that, you know, climactic finish. Um, because once you decide on that, that's your job to find a way to authentically recreate spontaneity, um, 
uh, that instinctual uh, thing that that got you to a moment that the, that the director says, yes, that's it. That's her truth. And then you have to do that 120 times on stage. Um, and a thousand percent every time you do it. Yeah. So suddenly there's that pressure of you have to get there. You have to get there. But in rehearsal, oh my gosh, there's joy and there is frustration because you can't get it. You can't, I can't find it. What is it? Where is she? Where is she? And then that moment comes where you find it. Ugh, it's so much fun. And there's just laughter and community and discussion and mm-hmm. And I, I just love it. I yeah. love it so much. Brent would say if he could just rehearse forever and never open a play, he'd be super happy. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Do you have a favorite production you've done? Is there a fave? You know, it sounds easy, but it, it really is all of them. I love, I got to be in, you know, we did two Marx Brothers shows there, um, Animal Crackers and Coconuts. And I got to be in these just hellishly creative, funny, you know, you could, I would break on stage. Mark Bedard played Groucho um, and did the adaptation for Coconuts. Brent played Harpo. Um, John Tufts played Chico. Kate Vogt was the sort of their comic foil. Um, I've never laughed so hard in my life. And sometimes I did it on stage in front of, you know, 600 people because Mark Bedard would purposely try to break me. And he did. It's, I've never been so unprofessional. Um, certainly playing Blanche Dubois, mm. it was the most challenging thing that's ever, I've ever, ever, ever done. It's, it, it's still, I look at it and go, God, I wish I could do that one again. Um, because there's so much to have uncovered for her. And it was terrifying. I was terrified every time I did it. Well, she's such, um, an, she's such a complex yeah. woman. I mean, such a, uh, yeah, I, I can't even imagine yeah. how you began to play that. Yeah. And, 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 and people had a preconceived notion about mm-hmm. who she was going to be. I was at the Y on a treadmill one time and a gentleman I didn't know said to me, Hey, uh, uh, you're Kate, right? You're going to, you're going to do streetcar. And I said, yeah, I am. He said, well, I'm not going to see it. Okay. How come? Well, I saw the movie. Okay. <laughs> the play is very different from the movie, but, uh, you know, give it a shot. So people, you know, once sure. people have something to compare it to, you're already kind of screwed. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, you still you still do it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, I loved doing Hairspray. I was really proud of that show. Hairspray, I, you know, I am, I'm a, I'm a bad Southern Oregonian because I really got into um, OSF late being here. You know, I mean, people are like, you've lived there how long and you've never seen a production? How dare right. you? Um, right. But Hairspray, yeah, I mean, that just... I can't imagine the amount of work and the rehearsals with the choreography, the music. Jackie Miller was our choreographer and she is hands down the best choreographer, movement director. There is nothing that woman can't do, particularly with (laughs) non-dancers. She so respectfully watches the way your body moves, sees what your strengths are and will build around what you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, she also, we did a production of Twelfth Night a few years ago. And again, a lot of these are Chris Moore, Christopher Lee Moore directed plays. Um, and, you know, there was, it ended with a big tap number. And I can't tell you how many of the actors went up to her and said, my character would never be in that uh, tap dance. And she would say, but he is. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, 
you also are going to be super challenged and you're going to learn how to tap, you're going to learn how to tap dance. Yeah. And we all did. It was crazy. What does Brent say about the whole, you know, with OSF being essentially canceled this year yeah. because of the pandemic? Yeah. Is he, how is he handling all of that? Um, you know, he gives himself a lot of projects around the house. <laughs> Good man. It's, uh, yeah. And it's, you know, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. It's disappointing. You know, I wasn't a part of a build of any shows, but you build these shows and you're there every day and you are bleeding and you're crying and you're frustrated and you're full of joy and you get to that place where you finally get to share it and you're so proud of it. And you, you know, I don't know if people are going to love it or hate it, but you know, they always say that what, you know, one of the biggest aspects of the play is the audience, mm -hmm. you know, that response, that voice comes into play in the production. Um, and then you get to do that and they got to do it, what, three previews and maybe two performances. So it was, you know, ugh. what do they call that? Coitus interruptus. I think it was a little bit of that. <laughs> it was a, a gut like, punch. Wait, I didn't quite finish. It was a gut punch for sure. Your description's yeah. a little better, but <laughs> Um, and then, you know, the whole, the financial aspect for the whole community. Yeah. That how, how are restaurants going to maintain how, you know, there was a thing about, we got to figure out, um, you know, if OSF, this is when it was still possibly going to open up in September and the COVID was, you know, rampant, but this county has been, done such a beautiful job of um, being respectful about social distancing and all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Um, but that if audiences are able to come, they got to be able to eat somewhere. They got to be able to shop somewhere. Mm -hmm. How do we maintain the local businesses um, when OSF is not bringing in tourists? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It, it will be interesting to see what happens in the future. Um, but again, I'm... And something will happen. Mm -hmm. Nataki is a strong, positive voice and force um, for this uh, community. And she will, it will, something will happen that will be, it might come back. I mean, they might do, who knows? We're gonna do two productions and they're both gonna be in the outdoor stage mm -hmm. and everybody will sit four seats away. Great, people will come back. People want it. People want, they want the, the beauty of the community of sitting in an audience and watching a play and having that shared experience if it, even if it's not the same experience, it's a shared experience. Um, there's nothing like sitting in the audience of that Elizabethan theater as the sun goes down. It's breathtaking and it's powerful because theater's been happening in that space since 1935. Um, and even prior to that, when it was part of the Chautauqua circuit, and that was in the late 1800s. That space where the Elizabethan theater is, that's where they performed theater in the late 1800s as part of the, Ch Ch uh, the Chautauqua circuit. Mm. So something will come back in some way. Yeah, that gave me chills. Whew. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so we're gonna wrap up a little bit. I just realized I forgot to prep you on my final three questions, I think. Oh, okay. So I wonder what they are. you can handle it though. I know you okay. can handle this. First of the <laughs> final three, best yeah. advice you've ever been given. And we can come back to it if you would like. I mean, the first thing that came into my head, and I don't know 
who said it to me, but um, was to trust yourself. Hmm. Other people are going to have a lot of opinions about what you do and how you do it. And at the end of the day, you're lying in bed in your own head and you have to feel okay with yourself. Trust yourself. A hundred percent. This one, very, very timely for you-ish. Uh, if you ever left this place, Southern Oregon, what would you miss the most? What would bring you back here? Lord, the community, everything about it. The actors and the... Um, the friendships that I have formed through the Oregon Shakespeare Festival um, are friends that I will have for the rest of my life. I'm a godmother because of it. Um, you know, these aren't just, they have a thing called a showmance. You do shows with people and then it's over and you're so bonded and then you lose touch. Yeah. But there are friends here that I will have forever. Um, and on the other side of that, the community that my son Declan built through soccer um, I would have people I had never met before say, Hey, I see you have a matinee today. Do you need me to pick up Declan and get him to the game? And it was, I, I love it. I love it here so much. I love it here so much. My son grew up here. Mm -hmm. And, um, so community theater and the, the community as a whole. Beautiful. Okay. Final meal, final drink. What would that look like? The drink would have tequila in it. I love that you started with the drink. Oh, <laughs> you are a woman after my own heart, especially when you just pick tequila. The drink would have tequila in it. And um, this is so lame, but really my greatest love is almond butter. <laughs> it's so full of fat. If you leave me alone with a jar and a spoon, I will finish that sucker. Almond butter and, and tequila. <laughs> <laughs> That's me in a nutshell. You just met me in a little nutshell. You go. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I feel like I feel like we could keep going. I really do. Um, but we'll continue the salty conversations for for tequila. Um, yeah. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. You just bared yourself, and I, it was the most beautiful thing. So thank you, Kate Mulligan. Thank you for asking. Thank you for being interested in anything I have to say. It's um, it's very kind of you, and uh, and uh, I'm I'm grateful to have seen you today, and I can't wait to talk to you again soon. Well, um, keep me posted on NYC. Very curious about that, and I have decided. If I die, I want to come back as Kate Mulligan. Just saying. <laughs> well, there's room. There's room for all of us. <laughs> all the personalities. I want to go stay with your aunt for a summer. Man. Oh. Well, she's there. She's in Florida right now from, you know, hiding from the COVID and doing her thing. But she's, she's, they had an all my children Zoom reunion that I just saw a photo of and she was a part of it she's her name is jennifer bassey and she is so kick ass i can't google even. her when you're done she's so kick i ass. will i'm going to i'm absolutely going to um if you are listening to this podcast on apple's podcast app and you like it please subscribe rate and review we're also on stitcher soundcloud and google play you can watch this podcast at ktbl.com and you can also find me on youtube one more time brilliant and beautiful kate mulligan thank you so much <laughs> Thank you, Trish. Text me. We'll meet up at the winery sometime. Um, we're doing it. We are absolutely okay. doing it.
Bye, friend. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you.